Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we got another Career Pathways episode coming at you, which we actually haven't it's had one in a while. It's yeah. been a while. We went through a phase where that was like all we had. It was Career Pathways for them. But we're back at it and we got a seafood industry. Titan. Titan. Ooh, that's a good <laughs> word. Ken Corcoran, who has been with GSA for the last 11 years, but he has quite an interesting career where he's bounced all around the world, different jobs. Many different continents. And different uh, facets of the industry as well. So it's a really cool story. And he just drops knowledge bombs the whole time. Yes. I I say at the end, Ken is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he is so full of valuable advice and knowledge. You really want to get a notebook out for this episode because it's there's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, we don't often say that about taking notes But if you're not driving and if you're not working out at the gym, (laughs) then you should definitely take notes on this episode. For sure. But before we get into it, I want to remind everybody to make sure you're subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. And if you'd like to get in contact with us or if you'd like to get in contact with Ken following the interview, then you can do that via email. You can reach us at podcast at globalseafood.org. Or you can contact us on our website, which is globalseafood.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at AquademiaPod. And if you have a couple minutes, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, whether it's Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. If you're able to leave a rating and review, it really helps us out a lot. And we really appreciate everybody that's done that. So without any further ado, thank you so much. We will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. We desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. These are the loudest water bottles. The squeakiness. Yeah. This needs a little Vaseline. (laughs) (laughs) Or WD-40. Yeah, right? (laughs) Makes the water taste good. I bet that's really safe to eat. (laughs) So, okay. Before we get into it, I need to apologize to our listeners because we all just shoved cake down our throats and (laughs) we got coffee going. We're going to try to stay as upbeat as we can, but we got full bellies. But we're sitting down today. With one of my good friends since I've been working here at GSA, Ken Corcoran. How's it going, Ken? Pretty good. Hi, Sean. Nice to talk to you today. And Ken, what is your current position here? What's your current title here? Here in the Global Seafood Alliance, I'm working as a program integrity analyst, um, which takes me into a lot of the details of the standards, how they're written. I'm chairman of the Standards Oversight Committee. Um, which governs how we put our standards together. Um, I'm a lot involved in the auditor training courses, mainly the technical aspects of the standards and how they're applied both in facilities and responding to issues that come up in the course of audits and dealing with certification body questions, that sort of thing. So virtually anything having to do (laughs) with best aquaculture practices, Ken has touched. (laughs) (laughs) I've been around it. For sure, yeah. And I I got to know Ken pretty well from when I worked in BAP. I would go to him with any and all questions I had about anything to do with applications or standards. And uh, I went and did a a bunch of the auditor training courses with Ken. And Sean did new applicants, especially for a while initially. So when new ones were coming in and everyone had to figure out, well, where is this and what do they do? What kind of facility is it? Yeah, there were a lot of unknowns from the facility standpoint in that process. So 
Ken was super helpful with all that. And I've I've traveled to different parts of the world with Ken, and, and he's always reliable uh, when it comes to, you know, helping you figure out where you need to go and what you need to do and everything. Because Ken has been all over the world, and he's lived in a lot of different places, and he's got quite a story, so I'm really excited to hear it. So, Ken, why don't you go back to however far back you wish and start <laughs> there, and then let, tell us about your career. All right, Sure. So, so part of my background context is growing up in a, a missionary family. My dad was a medical missionary. My grandfather was a me- medical missionary. Oh, wow. Uh, my great-granduncle was a medical missionary. Uh, some of the great-uncle was in India. My grandfather was in China. And my dad, when I was four years old, we went with our family to Thailand, and he opened up a hospital in Thailand a couple of years after first arriving. They had to learn the language. He had to get a medical license that had to – he had to learn Thai because he had to take it in Thai. Um, I learned Thai as a kid uh, growing up in Thailand. But um, So a lot of my context is that background of, of being international. I didn't know while I was there necessarily that there was such a thing as aquaculture in Thailand. They were probably doing it at the time, but I wasn't particularly aware of it. But we lived on the river and we went to the holiday at the ocean, and so yeah, I liked water. But uh, we eventually came back to the U.S. after being in Thailand for eight years, and I was four years old when we first went and 14 when I came back. And so I went through last part of junior high and then high school in Yakima, Washington, which was where my family called home. Uh, I, I liked fish enough that I had 15 or more aquariums in my bedroom downstairs <laughs> that shared the bedroom with me. I raised aquarium fish, was breeding fish and selling them to the local aquarium fish store and collected Tubifex worms from downstream of a trout farm to feed wow. to the fish to make them breed better. And uh, anyway, yeah, that, so I got my start with fish really, I'd say, in high school, but didn't really know that there was such a thing as a career in it and went to the University of Washington in Seattle and studied zoology was what I stayed in for a while. But that's a pretty competitive field. You're in with pre-medical and pre-dental students and uh, – I got a little burned out with that. I actually stopped school for a while between my junior and senior years, but then found in the course of traveling, I actually worked for this a summer or more than a summer and earned money to go travel for the better part of a year in Asia. And I went back to Thailand and also traveled in Malaysia and Indonesia. So I was gone for a whole year out of college mm. and then came back. And by that time, I had discovered there was such a thing as aquaculture and University of Washington had a program in it that was mainly for salmon and trout, not that much with other species. But there was a professor who had newly arrived from California that had a background in crustacean toxicology. So he had used macrobrachium freshwater prawns as his animal for research. And so I picked him on my committee and I was able – I was really fortunate in a lot of different ways in in choices that I made in – uh, in going into fisheries. Um, so in finishing up my bachelor degree in zoology, I needed to uh, complete the degree. I'd gone through three years, but I substituted as many fish courses as I could for the zoology mm-hmm. requirements and did finish in with a degree in zoology, but applied to graduate school for fisheries for the, in aquaculture area again, which University of Washington had. But in the summer, then I, I started doing various jobs that you can find at a un- in a university connection. Uh, one of the more interesting ones was working as an observer 
basically doing biological observations on board uh, foreign fishing boats that were fishing in the Alaska Bering Sea area. That is such a common route that people take in and, this in this, And field. that's a wonderful way that almost anybody can qualify for if you're yeah. persistent at it. I don't think you have to be a biologist necessarily. They, they just need someone who can learn what the basic steps are that you need to do to monitor, you know, the numbers of the catch, how many species there are. Um, sizes, lengths, ages, that yeah. sort of thing. We always joke that you're the most hated person on the on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Observers are not popular. But it, it's amazing how many people we've spoken to who started their careers yeah. as an observer. And I remember when I was in college, because I went for aquaculture fishery at University of Rhode Island, and there was a professor there who had a connection with some local, I don't know what if it was a, a fishery management company or something, but he could always get any of the graduates from this program, he, he could hook you up with a job as an observer. And that's yeah. a lot of people go that route. It's just like, that seems to be like the common first step yeah. in starting. And it's, it's really fascinating how many people that we've spoken to in all different parts of the industry mm -hmm. doing completely different work. A lot of them trace back to that first job as an observer, which right. I think is just cool. So if anyone out there is wanting to get their foot in this industry and they're not sure how to start, that's a great way to start. And there's lots of opportunities. And I, I, the nature of it may have changed somewhat. At the time I was there, there were fishing boats from Korea, from Taiwan, from Russia, from Japan. And I chose Jap Japanese boats purposefully because I'd heard the food was better. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. So I, yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, it's funny. But, I actually, <laughs> talking about observers in pop culture, I recently watched a movie called Coda. It won a bunch of Oscars. I think it won Best Picture the this year. animated film? No. C-O-D-A. It's about a fishing family. Oh, huh. And the mother, father, and son are all deaf. And then the daughter is the only one in the family who can hear. And they're all fishermen. Wow. And the like one of the high points of the movie is when an observer comes on their boat and doesn't know that they're deaf. And the hearing oh. girl isn't on the boat, so they can't communicate with each other. And it was this whole wow. thing. But it was so funny to see an observer, like, in actual pop culture recently. <laughs> so figured I would share that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that still exists as a viable uh, job for folks to do. It's not something most people would want to stay with for their whole career. But, but I, the first year I was on an independent stern trawler, so I was by myself on a boat that was just fishing for itself and processing what it caught. The second year I was on board a, a factory ship, which was two football fields in length, 600 Whoa. feet long. It had 600 people working on it, all men, not a single woman on board at the time. Um, it had 25 fishing boats mm -hmm. with it catching fish of Pollock mainly. And you were monitoring the catch. Uh, and I was there with one other observer who was a French uh, graduate fishery student that was studying at the same university as me. Anyway, that it's a good uh, initial step. And uh, there's some that are operating out in the tropics as well for tuna fisheries, so not just cold water stuff. Um, and then, you know, when you're a graduate student, professors have all these odd jobs that they're always hunting for somebody to do. Mm -hmm. Research And so I remember one job, I was what they call candling fish. You'd have a fillet of sole you'd put on a, a table and the light would shine on it and you'd be counting parasites. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many worms does this, <laughs> does this fillet? Wow. So that was wild caught type product. And, and usually it was pretty low numbers, but in certain freshwater area or areas where the sea meets the ocean, estuaries, there tended to be more flat fish and more problems like that. 
whereas out in the more open ocean there were less issues. Anyway, that's that was one thing. Uh, there was also a job. You'd collect the eyes. Actually, salmon have salmon that go to different streams as their home stream. Each of them are slightly different genetically, even though they're the same species. There are slight differences because they've homed to that same stream for so many generations. They diverge a little bit. So there's like different races of salmon within the same species. And so they'd collect uh, from fish that had already spawned or something. They would collect samples and check the proteins on those. And so I was doing gel electrophoresis, it was called, to check mm-hmm. the the protein characteristics of one strain versus another. Anyone who's taken a, bio, a college-level biology course probably knows that that probably is bringing up some nightmares. Electrophoresis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that I mean, that was not a great job. In fact, anyway, I, I had issues later. You don't need to get into it if you don't have to. No. <laughs> um, but really, the, the a positive turn on things came when I did get into graduate school, uh, persisted in applying and got accepted at University of Washington and um, got this professor who had the shrimp background. Also, uh, there were some uh, – there was an engineering firm in Seattle that used to do a lot of – uh, aquarium, public aquarium designs, but also U.S. fish and wildlife or state fish hatcheries that involved recirculation. Mm-hmm. So I got interested in recirculating facilities at the time. And my master's degree was a rather simplistic thing, which is nothing to brag about in terms of what the eventual publication was. But it, I learned about recirculating systems and the contacts I made while at that company and so on were were helpful to me. And so that's one thing is just it, – it, when you're in trying to get into the education end of it, trying to get into a school that has a credible program, it may not get in there the very first time you apply. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, keep trying to find relevant jobs, part-time, whatever, showing that you're serious about it. You, you persist at it enough and keep applying to maybe more than one university. They'll recognize eventually professors like to see someone – who who really is intent on trying to get going in a field? And, and this so is graduate school. You that was graduate school, yeah, yeah. master degree program. Yeah. So I did. I I spent probably more time than I should have spent finishing that degree because <laughs> I got married and had kids. And hey, uh, it, took, it took me however many years. <laughs> I just finished mine like last year. So yeah. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, before I got done, we'd had uh, one child, and and we I had an opportunity to go. Overseas for that, my first overseas job was through the university, and this was to Indonesia. There was a USAID-funded project in eastern Indonesia in Ambon um, with a university called Patamura University, and I went to help finish out the last nine months of that contract. And my wife was six months pregnant when that took place, oh and she decided she was going to come with me. And, <laughs> oh, good for her. <laughs> and that's, that's a key, too. To, the other point I will make is that in order to – really persist and go into, especially the commercial end eventually of aquaculture, you need to be willing to go where the work is. And sometimes that's not right in your backyard. It's most of the time not in your backyard. You need to be willing to relocate. And then you need to have a family that's willing and ready and willing to do that with you and support each other in doing that. So we went to Indonesia and our son was born in Indonesia while we were there. And my wife stayed about a month and a half or two months after that. And the living conditions were not that easy. So she went back a bit early and I followed a few months after. But but uh, we moved uh, after we came back to the U.S. We, uh, I had been involved 
uh, as I mentioned in the very beginning of this, I said I was, we were involved collecting tubifex worms to use to feed aquarium fish. Well, I found a, a trout egg production company uh, in the Seattle area that I had known of, and I, I did get some work with them, and I ended up contracting with them to collect the tubifex worms downstream of them. And I had the best business I ever had, probably made more money doing those worms than <laughs> I, I have done in most jobs uh, but it was not sustainable. Eventually, they had to change configuration of the farm, and the worms were not viable. So we ended up moving to Idaho, so where the Idaho, where the trout no industry. And I tried to do the worms. <laughs> I tried. I went there and tried to do the worms in Idaho. In fact, uh, but it, again, the conditions somehow were not quite right. I think it requires a temperature drop in the winter, and the Idaho conditions is constant spring temperatures year round, which is why the trout. Farming, you know, the production of commercial trout is so big in Idaho because there's ideal, clean, clear water, even temperature around, great for producing, you know, table size trout. So in in Idaho, I went for for worms initially, but really trout eventually was what I was doing. I managed for a little while a small trout farm, uh, and then had an opportunity to go work in a research laboratory at a U.S. feed company that had operations there, and there was a lab funded by actually two U.S. feed companies um, that were working on a research project for a stabilized form of vitamin C that goes into aquaculture feeds. Fish, just like us humans, need vitamin C. They'll develop uh, symptoms of, of uh, malnutrition if they don't have enough vitamin C. So vitamin C, if you try to put it into a complex mix of ingredients like you have in aquaculture feeds – when you make those feeds, it goes. It, it's being done at high temperatures, which and at high moisture, which destroys vitamin C. Yeah. So people were looking for a stabler form of vitamin C. And there was a professor in Kansas at Kansas State University, Dr. Paul Seib, who had developed, uh, who invented a phosphorylated vitamin C. They just add some phosphates onto the vitamin C molecule. So they found that it did stabilize vitamin C. It would survive the feed milling, but nobody knew if the fish could still use it. Interesting. Because the phosphates would block its uptake. Yeah, they were worried whether they block that. So there were several steps that had to be developed. One, once you stabilize it that way, if you use the normal method to test in the feeds for vitamin C, it doesn't show up because it's not the same, quite mm -hmm. the same molecule. Mm -hmm. But it turned out fish do have the means of uh, breaking it down, taking off that phosphate to where it's biologically available. So it was tested at the lab that I was working in. I coordinated research under a director there. And um, there, there, we did stuff with small species like, I don't know if you know what a fathead minnow is, mm -hmm. you probably yep. would. Sean. Um, Sean did zebra danios, but another oh, yeah. <laughs> lab animal for, for small fish is, is the fathead minnow. Fairly easy to reproduce. So we did some trials with that. We did trials elsewhere under contract for catfish. We did stuff for trout there because trout we had a lot of. Um, and so it was demonstrated that this was biologically available, and that turned out to be a highly successful commercial product. Which is, was, that, is that product usable for other fish species as well, or is it that trout have because we when we spoke with the the folks at Innova Feed about the insect protein, they were saying that trout are the the insect proteins work really well with trout because that's part of their natural diet. So you know certain elements of feed are are sometimes really well suited for one species, right. but not so much for other species. But this overall, this vitamin C was vitamin overall, C is has turned out to be in this form and other forms that have been yeah. used 
is turn out to be biologically available for, for all of them. And the other species, are, they're able to break yes. through that phosphate. Yep. And, yep. Cool. So it became highly, highly That's successful. Big. It was bought by one of the great big vitamin companies, and it, is, it still is uh, used. When we were doing it, we were making it on a lab scale, and it was kind of a liquid form. It was kind of a liquid process to, to produce it, but eventually we were only able to get it up to a certain concentration, and it's, feed mills don't like to use liquid ingredients. They like dry. Yeah, right, right. So we eventually came to the end of our ability to really commercialize it, and, and it was bought by a big vitamin company that made good use of it. So that was, you know, that was, I would say, my special period in my career, too, to be involved in a meaningful research project like that that went that eventually, you could say, went viral. It was yeah, it lives <laughs> on today. But then uh, the the company had interest. They were exporting feeds overseas. They sold shrimp feeds to Australia. There were and in in India and to Philippines because there were not a lot of feed mills for aquaculture at the time. This was in the mid nineteen nineties. No, sorry, mid nineteen eighties. Uh, so uh, nineteen eighty. 786, I, I started working with them on uh, exporting of feeds and being in touch with people uh, overseas to, to buy feeds. But eventually I, I had an opportunity to uh, – I'd heard about a project keeping, keeping an eye on opportunities internationally because I had gotten interested in international stuff from working in Indonesia on that one time and having grown up in Thailand – there came up an opportunity that was with BP Nutrition, which was a subdivision of BP Oil, which had gotten into the feed end of uh, aquaculture by a very indirect route. There was a time when oil was low, a low-priced commodity, and people were trying to make single-cell protein from oil. Hmm. Now there's some similar projects, I think, for doing that from natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been seeing, but I haven't followed it real closely. But they got into making single-cell proteins, which became an ingredient animal feeds, and then they bought some animal feed companies, and some of them were aquaculture. And so eventually they, they bought a project in Thailand called Aquastar. Oh. Uh, which was <laughs> Yeah, which was formed by actually three American guys. One guy was a financier. One was a formal Peace Corps guy that was kind of a development guy. Another guy was a Taiwanese-American who knew shrimp farming. And so they together put together kind of a contract farming project in southern Thailand that they named Aquastar. And they were the ones that invented the name. And when BP Nutrition bought that project, they also bought a seafood uh, marketing company in Seattle that was called something else at the time. And I don't even remember what they were called, Mm. but they came to be called Aquastar. They used that name that came from that Thailand project. What I went there to do, I was hired to come out to to manage a research organization that was being put together to be kind of a sister organization to the Stavanger Coldwater Research Center of BP Nutrition, or it was it was Scredding was the company name in in Norway. the The company that I actually worked for was Trow International, which was Dutch, but. But anyhow, it was an international company that was trying to expand into warm water aquaculture, and we organized a. Uh, research operation, hired someone who was a nutritionist in background, hired someone who was uh, sort of uh, farm and hatchery, and then another guy who was a pathology guy. And some of these folks are people who have gone through their entire career in aquaculture uh, and are known people now. Um, But at some point, uh, BP 
shareholders, BP was facing challenges in, I guess, oil prices and so forth, and their shareholders told them to stop doing diverse things and get back to their core oil activities. So that project was and ended up being sold. Thai Union eventually bought the project, and Thai Union mainly was interested in the feed mill and in the processing plant. But so, again, one, one lesson I would share from that opportunity, so, I mean, I... I had coordinated research at this feed activity at this feed research lab in Idaho, but I had also lived in Thailand and could speak Thai. And this job in Thailand, they wanted someone who could manage research and who spoke Thai. Mm-hmm. And there's probably I don't know, it might have been four or five people in the world that might have fit that description <laughs> at the time. How, how many languages do you speak, Ken? I I really at the time spoke just two Thai and English, but I later learned French while working in Madagascar. So one of my favorite memories from with Ken is <laughs> <laughs> from China when we were in China for a, I think we were in Shanghai for auditor training course, and we went to a Thai restaurant in this mall that was had like twelve stories, and we sat down and had the tables that are at like floor height, so we're like sitting in the floor. And the waitress comes over and Ken just starts speaking Thai to her. And we were all super impressed. And we were like, oh, this is like so cool. Like he's going to get the inside scoop and all this stuff. And the waitress just looked at him with this blank stare. Like, she wasn't Thai. What the heck? Well, uh, she was Chinese because we were in China. And so, oh so we, he just, we just kind of assumed like, oh, it's a Thai restaurant. And it'll be like right. culture. But n- nope, they were all Chinese. No and one I spoke said, Thai. And, yeah. and we were all very disappointed. And I said, all right, my pen rai. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that. That just stands out so much. That was such a funny moment. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, we we went then from uh, Thailand when that project was being sold. I I went back to working with this American feed company uh, that was they were planning to open a project in India to manufacture feeds in India because the shrimp farming industry was really escalating at the time. So you really got kind of. Locked into the feed uh, industry. I, so for I, a while. I was in the feed industry pretty closely, and uh, and again, being willing to travel to where mm-hmm. the work was, it it has its challenges. You know, I, you're away from your close family. Uh, you hope you know your your mar- your spouse and your children travel with you, but your folks and your brothers and sisters don't. Um, so you're away from a lot of your normal support group, um, but you develop then. Uh, you know, support group locally there, and there's a whole they call them expatriate communities, and they're from all over the place. In Thailand, there were in, down where we were in southern Thailand, there were British, there were Australians, there were French, there were Dutch, there you know all kinds of nationalities, and people tended to gravitate a bit together socially. You'd play volleyball together on the weekend, you'd mm-hmm. uh, you know have picnics together, whatever. They had a running club in Thailand. Actually, this has been elsewhere in Asia, called the Hash House Harriers. I think it's a British phenomenon, and they used to Sounds call it. British. It. It, was a, <laughs> it was a running club, but they they had a big beer fest at the end nice. of it. So we used to oh. say it, it was a it was a it was a drinking club with a running problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen T-shirts that say things like that. That's fantastic. Uh, anyway, yeah. So we ended up in India for two years with that. American company, and then things went a bit south with the Indian shrimp industry for a while. The Supreme Court of India took a decision to basically ban shrimp farming along the entire coastline of the entire country because of some issues that developed out of uh, wells in some villages that were supposed to be freshwater wells that went salty because some farms were built on Uh, sandy soil and the water pumped up from the sea would trickle down into the wells. 
So that was taken to the Supreme Court, and it ended up it ended the shrimp industry. That's an issue, yeah. That's huge. in India for fifteen years, wow. probably before it struggled back into some normalcy again. I didn't know. When was it? When when that. was that? That was Late in nineteen ninety seven. Oh, okay. Late I would 90s. say 1997, That Supreme Court case case came out. The company I was working for decided not to continue. I switched uh, employment because, again, for family considerations, we weren't ready at that time to leave India. I had a daughter who was in boarding school in northern India and loved where she was, mm-hmm. wanted mm-hmm. to finish her school program. So I found another job with another company that was uh, the Belgian hatchery feed company uh, that needed to – they were opening an office regionally at the time. So stayed on in the region uh, for a time with that. But again, because of the Supreme Court decision – in India, um, things uh, went downhill on that. Hmm. So, did it buy you enough time? <laughs> it, it bought enough time. My daughter graduated. Uh, we she graduated in a, a sari, a nice sari that we promptly lost in the taxi on the way back, <laughs> oh. along with her diploma. Oh, no. We just forgot a suitcase there. Oh. We we got a replacement diploma, but we didn't get a replacement sari, unfortunately. Oh, oh. that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, the memories. It's the memory. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, it you know provided our daughter a good opportunity for her when she applied to college she had kind of a unique profile yeah. uh, she ended up she was interested in architecture and tried a bunch of different programs she got into Cornell uh, wow um, just combination of things but but good for her yeah so following following that we went back to the U S a while again you get you're trying to stay in the industry but you bounce back and forth a little bit things uh, start up and and finish and it, i think it's the same way even in the academic part of this field fund if funding at a university goes up and down you know jobs come and go and but um my next the next opportunity was to go to Madagascar there was a company looking for someone to go manage the shrimp farm in Madagascar that was black tiger and that's the same species that was being done in Thailand when i went there and that was being done in India while I was working there. So that same species was being done in Madagascar, but on a very large scale in a kind of Latin America style, Mm semi-intensive farm with um, 75 or so ponds, uh, 1,500 acres of shrimp ponds, and they were producing about 7 million pounds of black tiger shrimp a year. Oh my god! It's pretty commercial. Yeah. (laughs) That's and, huge. And so that that's being was being processed and sold then mainly into Europe and on a very high end market. Uh, the the European market likes to have shrimp head on, not because they're going to eat the head necessarily, but keeping the head on shows how fresh, how well that, it was yeah, kept fresh before thing, freezing. Right? It's a marketing yeah. gimmick, you could say. But it it with that the processor gets paid for the head. Also, mm. that's a, which is a lot of weight. Yeah, that, seriously. So it, it's a it's a good thing. They, uh, but anyway, we we developed a system called Red Label. Uh, it was already being used in land animals like chickens in France, and it's an organoleptic standard. So um, quality, very quality oriented. And so we had to raise the shrimp in a certain way. They had to be processed in a certain way. And shipped and, and not done. dissimilar from BAP or it's it's very ones. similar. I mean, it's a standard with a lot of rules, but this one was was very quality oriented. Our, the BAP standards are more process oriented. What are the mm-hmm. environmental issues? What yeah, are the social issues? What are uh, what are the food safety issues? Especially we don't. And what are the environmental issues? We don't focus necessarily on on quality quality of end product. of it. There's a few things we specify that 
where like the temperature after harvest, you have to decrease the temperature quickly. And that's a food safety thing too. Mm-hmm. But it also has a very positive impact on, on quality. Gotcha. So yeah, in terms of moving around, uh, while I was there in Madagascar, we BAP was starting to do auditor training courses. And the first one that I, was available when I was still there was in Indonesia and Bill and Betty Moore were mm-hmm. teaching that course. I think Dan Lee was involved with that course. Um, but I went to Indonesia, took that course, and then our farm later became BAP certified. We applied and became BAP certified. Eventually, they they mainly pursued this red label uh, certification and didn't continue with the BAP. But when I came back from Madagascar then, though, I, I began, I would say, fairly seriously chasing BAP uh, to try to find uh, a more longer-term uh, work with with BAP. It was at the time the program was called the Aquaculture Certification Council (ACC), mm-hmm. and Bill and Betty Moore were operating that out of their home, I think, in Kirkland, <laughs> Washington. Uh, um, and I let's see, I traveled mainly to Thailand for them on short-term consultancies again because I speak Thai. They were trying to also introduce the shrimp farm standard and introduce uh, a cluster program. Man, we've been trying to get that cluster program figured out since the beginning, huh? <laughs> yeah, and it was called something else at the time, the integrated operating module. But so we put it together. It was a way of trying to audit multiple farms at a time to find some economies, ways of doing it more cheaply. So, but it wasn't full time work. I wasn't able to stick uh, with it because I had a family to feed. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to work again with this U.S. feed company in Idaho. Um, for several years, and then things opened up uh, to work with the BAP again on a full-time basis. So uh, starting in 2011, I did start working full-time with the BAP. Um, And again, initially working mainly on the farm side of things, um, but eventually in different things enough to where this program integrity part of the company was formed, and, and I've been staying in this part of it for the last seven or eight years. It feels like the perfect position for you. Yeah. For yeah. someone like you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are the most detail-oriented person I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to ask you about, Ken. So when I think of you, I think the first thing that I think about is how detail-oriented you are. And I'm wondering how you've either acquired that skill through your career or how you you've always had it and how you used it in these different stops along the way so so yeah that that's a really important point is is it's not that someone ends up with an encyclopedic knowledge in their brain i mean there are people with photographic memories and all that that do but if anything i've got a pretty lousy memory but i know how to find things and if i've dealt with something often enough okay it sticks in my brain i i find that hard to believe (laughs) you are an encyclopedia of knowledge but it's that's stuff that i've dealt with often enough that it gets embedded and then okay yes it stays there but (laughs) i i think the most useful skill for anybody going into any field is not so much you, – you do need to learn the vocabulary of the field. That's a large part to me of what a graduate education is, is you're learning the vocabulary of a field that you're interested to pursue. And it's it's very particular vocabularies, the science end of it or even philosophy or humanities or anything. There's a very particular set of vocabulary acronyms. that accurately describe <laughs> – and acronyms <laughs> – to, to say long things in a short way, yeah. <laughs> Everything has an acronym. <laughs> um, but it's, it's learning the vocabulary and then learning how to find 
where that information or you're investigating something, you know the keywords now. And I tell you, the, the search engines anymore and the information that can be found by the search engines online are so powerful that if you ask things the right way or tweak it three or four times to where you're seeing what it is you're looking for, you can really find uh, an amazing amount of information. If I have any frustration right now, it's that there's a lot of the academic literature that's in scientific journals that I can't access because we don't have the paid subscriptions right. yeah. to them. But yep. it's amazing how much you can get anyway. And so if if anything that I've learned or that's a valuable tool that I would pass on, it is learn the vocabulary of the field and then learn where the information is and start keeping it. Hone, I, your, hone your research skills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hone your research skills. Keep your references. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many references I have downloaded onto a hard drive that I probably hardly ever look at for a lot of them anymore, but I kind of know more or less where they are. And if I need to go digging for them, I know where to find them again. Or if I lost it, I can go find it again on the internet. It's just, it's amazing how much is out there. But you have to be willing to say, okay, I don't know that, but I'm going to go try to find it out and not just be content to, to, to not know. Mm. Yeah, right. I think that's a really important point is taking the initiative to teach yourself things along the way because you can't be expected to be an expert as you're starting your career path. No. So you have to take that initiative and be excited and interested to learn and take that next step and take learn more for yeah. yourself. And a new field is certainly, you could say, forbidding in a sense. I mean, it, it looks like a big obstacle to try to learn some of that unique field vocabulary and to know, get to know maybe who the people are that are in that that's, field. That's what I was going to say. So, you know, one thing, especially now that people are always saying, like, it's, it's, it's about who you know, you know, yeah. and it's really hard, especially if you're looking at a career change or an industry change. Yeah. They're always like, you got to network, you got to do all this. And, you know, when you're networking, you're not just looking for something that someone can help you with. You need to provide value. And it's like, okay, but how do I provide value in a field that I have no experience in? I don't know anybody. How do you know? You need to really kind of t find those uncomfortable moments where you can step out of your <laughs> out of your comfort zone. And, you know, we always talk about that with these career pathways is everyone kind of has that one moment where they had to make a scary decision and they followed through with it. And that's what led them down the path of their career. I feel like you didn't have too many of those because of the way that you were brought up, you know, in in the missionary family. And you just that that was part of life for you. So choosing to go over and just take a job in Indonesia would be really scary for a lot of people. But for you, True. it was just, you know, like you were used to that. Yeah, I was more more ready or willing you know, to take those kinds of risks because they look like less of a risk to me. I was a little mm -hmm. bit familiar right, yeah. with it. And, and you know, I, I, I had been over in that part of the world, particularly in Thailand. I mean, talk about being right. comfortable, yeah, yeah. Uh, being able to speak the it's language. like going home. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, people treat you so differently once they know you speak their language, they're immediately comfortable with you. So yeah. that would be another thing to advise anybody is learn some other languages. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I mean, that's so important. You never know when it could turn out to be a turning point for you. So so now you've been at BAP, GSA, GAA, <laughs> other acronyms, RFVS, whatever we're doing right now, <laughs> um, <laughs> for, what, 11 years? It's 11, 11 yeah, plus years? some time while I was doing consulting. and Plus I was around the GAA when it was first forming in 1997. I was in India at the time, and, yeah. and they needed somebody to go look for commercial uh, founding members who would yeah. plunk down money to start the organization. I did find one. But wow. There you go. Yeah. 
So, um, so <laughs> what's next? Is retirement next, or are you gonna move back to Thailand? What are you thinking? Like, what's, what's your what's your plan for the future? Well, as I was saying, you know, career is not all about just me and what I can do. It's about what my family also wants to do. So I, I am looking to wind down a little. I've already wound down a little bit. I'm I'm working four days out of five, and I hope by next year to shift down to maybe three days out of five, but to stay involved with the company. I, I like what this company does, what this organization does. I know that what I, my skill set or, you know, the things I can do for the company are still of, of value. So I, I plan to stay involved, but I, uh, I have just projects I would want to do with my family. I do love to travel. Mm -hmm. COVID has not been kind to travel. <laughs> travel urges. You don't get to satisfy true, your yeah. travel urges very much, but I do enjoy traveling. Ken straps that fanny pack on. Ken, <laughs> Ken's known as the fanny pack aficionado around here. Yeah, I get the fun is poked at me for my little fanny pack. But They're so practical. It's where yeah. you I love put your passport packs. and your yeah. pens exactly. and your glasses. There's, there's no reason that anyone should ever get made fun of for using a and fanny it's, pack. It's not it's, it like is a, a crossbody bag or a backpack where it's like bulky and moving around <laughs> while you're moving it's it's stationary <laughs> right, while you're moving right. but i've caught a little flack for that in fact it, one of my pi colleagues made a, a simpson family uh caricature <laughs> right. of all of our team and mine had the fanny pack on so. <laughs> yeah. you know what though it's funny because people they're all just jealous they wish they could pull it off yes it takes a certain amount of confidence to pull something like that off and and you got it so be proud well, it's just it's just not not Caring too much what other people might think about it, I guess. Right. Exactly. Part of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's practicality. Yeah. <laughs> so we're getting a little close to time, but Ken, uh, you've dropped a lot of knowledge along this story as you've gone. I'm wondering if you have any, two things, if you have any other kind of fun little stories from your career that you'd like to share. And also if you have any kind of last minute advice for anyone who wants to kind of build a career in seafood. Fun story, I'll have to think a minute. But but uh, one just little tidbit of advice, certainly, that was passed on to me was while I was at the project in Thailand, <clears throat> is inevitably sometime in your career, you'll end up maybe in some sort of a disagreement with somebody about something. Um, and one piece of advice that was given to me by uh, my boss at the time was, uh, good news put in writing. <laughs> Bad news, just talk to somebody about it. Because you know? so, if you go on a rant in writing to somebody about it, about a thing, it's, 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 there. it's there. It can be used in a lot of ways. And Whereas if you just say something. Ask any politician. <laughs> I thought that was you know, useful advice, and I, I, I tried to remember it. I don't know that I always and if someone, succeeded. And if someone chases it. you with an ax, you run. Right? <laughs> that's one thing we've learned. Yeah, that's a lesson that, that one of our auditors learned overseas. That's a long story. Yeah, that's a story for another day. If we find out we're allowed to tell it, we'll tell it someday. Yeah. But uh, yeah, in terms of a funny story, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a good one to do without the detail. But but uh, in terms of my own career, I guess I can't think right offhand of any particularly really funny moment or awkward moment that would be fun to share. But but one thing, yeah, if if we maybe go along the lines of what Sean was just talking about, when you go into a facility to to do something, be sure that they're either. Either they're aware that you're coming 
or that they they they're still the company that you that they were the year before when they were also visited. So that's what happened is there was an audit that was arranged at a facility. We don't need to name the country; it doesn't matter. But uh, an auditor went to audit a facility, which turned out it had changed hands between the last year's audit and the next year's audit, and somehow that didn't get communicated either in the new application or to the certification body that well, was doing it. Well, a lot of times it. these facilities they'll just copy and paste their previous application, slap a new date on it and, and ship it over, yep. uh, which is something that I know that we were working on when I was yep. in BAP to kind of rein, rein that in a little bit. I'm sure it was a situation like so that. So there's this auditor that shows up on the day that he thought the audit was supposed to take place. And the the guy who then owned the farm looks at the auditor real funny and wasn't, you know, told him, you're not, you're not coming to this farm. They'd had maybe some of their shrimp were stolen over the last week or something. So they were really sensitive about anybody coming in. So he, he didn't know who this auditor was. And so the auditor was still trying to get in and take a look at stuff. And the, the owner eventually went into the hut and grabbed an axe and oh, said, you get off my. of my property. You don't, I don't know you. I don't know why you're here. Get out of this place. <laughs> This so, is not the only kind of thing. But everything turned out okay, can, right? Huh? Every, everything turned out okay. Yeah, he, the, auditor the, ex, was fine. the auditor was fine. He went home and the, he didn't try to audit it. <gasps> we found out later about the story. But, oh, my God. And, yeah. and this is not a normal thing that Ken needs to deal with regularly. Luckily. But <laughs> these things do happen. These things happen. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you, uh, you know, we, we've heard all kinds of crazy stories from some of these, some of these things. But, you know, you've had a fascinating career. And you've done a lot of cool stuff. I mean, a lot of a lot of cool places. What's been your favorite moment from it? Do you think? Well, in terms of you know personal satisfaction, um, I think it's been important that some of the companies I worked for were companies that you know they were they were companies with a good reputation. They were companies that that project on the vitamin C was one that I was really glad to have had the chance to be involved with. Making a real um, difference. It made a difference yeah. for, you know, for cost and for, I would say, even animal welfare for a lot of totally. aquaculture yeah, species because, yeah. you know, there, there was great difficulty in finding how to get enough of a, a vitamin C dose into aquaculture feeds. And most of aquaculture relies on feeding activity. So that was an important breakthrough that continues to be, um, you know, uh, an important product that continues to be used. And then this this project in Madagascar was very meaningful too in the sense that um, this company was very serious again. They, they were interested in a very high quality, high end product, but they also paid really close attention to social aspects. While we were in Madagascar, uh, my wife did uh, – she, she taught English often when we were different places. In Thailand, she did it. She, in India, wasn't so much occasion for it because so much English is already spoken right. yeah, yeah. in India. But in Madagascar, French was the main other language. And I had to learn French while I was there because that was the language of management there. But, um, but my wife – taught English, but she also developed an interest in the social programs that the company was doing. And so there was a village nearby where the processing plant was. And we ended up starting a foundation uh, that was helping uh, fund the high school education for kids from the village who went through the, the village school that the company sponsored, the village school. But then they would go to the high school and their families were in this village, but they had to go stay in kind of a boarding situation with extended family or something in the city. So we organized funding to help support their living costs and their costs at the, the high school in the nearby 
town and then eventually into college for wow. uh, probably a dozen or so kids. Wow, great. So that was, you know, the social aspect, you, you, or you will often in some of these developing countries situations be in a position to make a meaningful difference in some people's lives. And that, that was a moment for us as a family where it was really nice that we could do something. Yeah, that's amazing that your wife was involved too. It's like yeah. uh, a whole uh, team effort. Is there anything else that you want to get out there while you have the platform? While we got you behind the mic? Um, not that I can think of offhand, but maybe there'll be phase two. Yeah, <laughs> yes. absolutely. You are always I, welcome I have back. I'll no, think of things I should have said. I, I have, that's how it always goes. That's, that's what happens, yeah. And I have no doubt that we'll have you on again to talk about something, probably something feed-related because you, you're our go-to person for feed-related sure. stuff. If any of our listeners are interested in contacting you about anything would you be open to that sure um and what would be the best way for people to, to find you probably i would say right via the aqua your media through us media through you guys yeah. and and you, you can send them on to me if there's some of the real particular question that you think yeah, I yeah. Can for sure help with yeah for sure well thank you so much ken we really appreciate it like i said i've been working with ken i mean i've known you since i started here pretty much so like seven years um, and we've had some good times and you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I <laughs> just appreciate that you were able to come and share your story with us. So yes. Thank you. thank you for sharing your wisdom. Mm -hmm. I feel like there were a lot of great nuggets of advice throughout this episode. Definitely. I hope that you all were taking notes yeah. while <laughs> listening. <laughs> awesome. So. Certainly welcome. Folks, that was our conversation with Ken Corcoran. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. I hope you took notes. <laughs> and uh, like we said before, Ken is super smart and he's super nice and willing to help out anyone that is looking to get in contact with him. So if you want to talk to Ken, send us a message at podcast at globalseafood.org. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, like maybe you want to suggest a topic that you'd like us to cover or a potential guest or a sponsorship, then you can do that on our website, which is globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, then you can do that, which is at AquademiaPod. And lastly, if you don't mind, we would love it if you would take two minutes and just leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. That really helps us out and we appreciate everybody that's already done that. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Ciao. Adios.